We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DeVirginia. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your host, James DiVirgilio, alongside Alan Williams. We are six feet or so apart here in the studio during this COVID-19 podcast. We wanted to come and bring you some content. We have a very special show for you. This is way more exciting than the typical April podcast, which I think we do our best to make exciting. But this one, I can assure you all, is going to blow it out of the park. I'm not even going to spoil yet what you're about to hear. I'm going to let Alan tee that up for you. And of course, if you looked at the title of this episode, you already know. But in case you're someone who just presses the play button because you're so excited, surprise, surprise, uh, something's coming. Alan, how does it feel to be back podcasting? It's fun. It's a nice little change. You know, there's no football, no spring game, no anything really. So it's a good chance to get together, talk some Gator football, reminisce a little bit and have a really cool interview. But first, as always, if you like our content, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, become a patron on Patreon. We have had some new patrons in the month of March, uh, which is amazing and fantastic. Moving from small dono to large dono. Hey, Alexander, I want to work at Feather. Let's chat. Uh, We told the story about this. Of course, he does, in fact, now work at Feather, so he promised to up his dono. He did so. Thank you so much. We appreciate that. We hope things are going extremely well uh, for you and Alexander. Medium dono, Thomas Nassif. Thanks for coming on board, Thomas. I had a great conversation with you. I know you do a lot of your own analysis, and you were very appreciative of our defensive analysis, which doesn't get talked about too much on other pods. And then lastly, a small dono from Avery Strict. Thanks for coming on board. Appreciate all the support, especially during times like these. And still, of course, on the throne, Alexander Leventhal. Uh, If you're new to the program, what you can do is you become a patron on Patreon. There's a little competitive side to it. If you wind up sort of out blind bidding, uh, with your with your dono a higher level than our current champion, uh, then you can sit on the throne as well. Of course, if you are the current champion, you get a notification that someone has dethroned you, and then they can choose to up their ante. Uh, Alexander has been dethroned for moments multiple times, but he always comes back with some other amount to keep himself there. He is, in fact, the king, of course, of the uh, Gator Nation football podcast jungle. And lastly 
to conclude our intro segment here, I want to give a shout out to Mr. Sparks' fifth grade class. That's right, fifth grade class at Laurel Mountain Elementary School in Austin, Texas. Thank you all for listening. We know that you guys are diehard podcast fans, which Alan and I find to be so fantastic that first of all, fifth graders would be this into college football. And second of all, you take your time to listen to our podcast. We get the updates from your teacher and we love hearing it. So for all of you out there that are virtually learning, we appreciate the love. We're giving it right back to you. And first, we're going to get into something really cool here. We're super privileged to be able to have Scott Strickland, the UF athletic director, give us some of his time. We got to ask him a bunch of really cool questions. He was really candid about a lot of things. So let's not waste any time. Let's get to it. Joining us now is the athletic director for the University of Florida, Scott Strickland, friend of the program, Scott Strickland. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, James. Alan, appreciate you guys having me on. That's uh, great. It's great yes. to have you. Alan Alan wants to jump out with a softball. I wanted to come hard, but Alan wants to jump out with a softball. So we're gonna we're gonna ease you into today's today's segment. Alan, what do you got? Well, I just wanted to know what is it like being an athletic director during a pandemic? Wow. Um well, I've never done this before, so uh, it's, every day's kind of, uh, I wouldn't say every day's different, but it's not. That's, that's probably the, the best description, is usually what's great about working in athletics is every day's a little bit different, and, and there's no set schedule, and um, since we've shut everything down, that's not the case. Everything seems the same. There's a, there's a you know, my, my calendar's kind of boring. I have the same conference calls with the same people are really good people and they're really smart people but it just the monotony of doing the same thing day after day is a lot different than what we normally have in athletics where not only are you getting you know through your day a little different depending on what your meetings or your travels like but then you have the games to go to and the beauty of games is we don't know the outcome when we start the game and and there's that built-in natural tension to athletics and competition uh and all that's gone so that's that's the biggest difference um we obviously had great staff and um, you know, great coaches and they're trying to stay in touch with their athletes and, you know, we're trying to stay focused on the right things, but, uh, boy, we sure do miss, um, having our athletes and being around our staff, having our athletes on campus and being around our fans and going to games. What was it like when the decision was made to cancel all of the spring sports to end their seasons? What, what was that like when you're delivering that news to the coaches and, and the teams and the athletes? I mean, that's obviously an unprecedented decision. Uh, how, how was that? You know, it, it, as I look back, it kind of came in two waves. One was the NCAA's decision to cancel all the spring sport, all the winter and spring sport championships. And if you, that was on a Thursday of conference tournament week. So we had just canceled the SEC tournament that morning. I had flown back to Gainesville. I'm in my car heading from the airport to my house. And I'm at a stoplight. And I look at my, my phone. I see that the NCAA has canceled all winter and spring championships. So we went from, you feel like you're going from, you know, 60 to 160 like that. Because suddenly, not, this isn't just about what's going to happen with the NCAA men's basketball tournament. It's everything through the College World Series in Omaha being wiped out. And so that was, that was kind of like one moment in time that that decision was made for us. I didn't, you know, we, we made sure our coaches and everybody knew, but it wasn't a decision we were making. Um, then the next day, talking things through with our staff, at this point, we were going to allow our, our athletes to stay on 
that wanted to stay around to, to work out the facilities and to train and, um, you know, kind of have normal activities outside of competition. And that Friday morning, we just realized that's not going to be feasible. That's, and, and it's not the right thing to do. We need to go home. We need to shut down the locker rooms and shut down the weight rooms. And uh, standing in front of the coaches and telling them that that was the decision, that was no fun because um, there were a lot of, a lot of disappointed faces, not just about the weight room and the locker room shutting down. They were disappointed because of how it kind of the finality of what the NCAA decision the day before was in addition to this. It's hard to look at people who are so driven and so competitive type A personalities and say, it's over. You know, and I'm looking at Brian Shelton, our men's tennis coach, who, you know, has a team that has a chance to win championships. I'm looking at, you know, Kevin O'Sullivan, the baseball coach, whose team's ranked number one in the country. And, you know, Jenny Rowland, whose gymnastics team has already won the SEC and number two in the country has a chance to win a national championship. Uh, and several others have really successful programs and teams and seasons on this going, just have it shut down in one instant. That, uh, that, that's a, that's, that wasn't a fun day. Yeah, and, and obviously it's something at least that is not ascribed to you, right? It's one of the weird moments as as the athletic director that this is not even really your decision. So you're sort of a, a messenger saying this is what has to be done. But then to see the, like you mentioned, the real loss that occurs during during something like this um, is is obviously palpable. Kurt Herbstreet projected out into the future, I think, well before maybe others were even unraveling this, that he would be quote shocked if college football happened this season. I've read enough quotes to know that projecting what's going to happen is, is not a a fruitful exercise. However, it is something that needs to be discussed, especially for those listeners that know that without football, college athletics maybe doesn't function. And, And I want to give you this quote that I'm sure you're aware of from Iowa state's athletic director, Jamie Pollard. If we can't play football this fall, I mean, it's ice age time. There's nobody in our industry right now that could reasonably forecast a contingency plan for how they would get through not playing any football games. The thought that there's no football and losing an entire season, that's a complete game changer. College athletics wouldn't. I'm not going to say go away as we know it, but it's probably closer to that answer. How bleak is imagining a year without college football as an AD? Well, it's, it's um, it gets uncomfortable real quick. Not not to use hyperbole, also not to understate it. You know, football drives. I think it's fair to say eighty to eighty-five percent of the revenue for an athletics program. And a place like Florida and several other Power Fives, maybe not all of them, but we're self-sufficient financially, which means we're generating all of our own revenue to pay for the tuition for our student athletes, to pay for their training, their housing, their their clothing, their food to pay for our staff, to pay for travel, all recruiting, all the stuff that goes into running an athletic program, we're generating the, our revenue. We have about $140 million budget at Florida, and we're generating all that revenue, and about 80 to 85% of that money is directly or indirectly tied to the sport of football. So you don't have to be you know, a financial genius to figure out it's pretty important to have a football season if this current model is going to be – is going to continue. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, say some things on a recorded broadcast, a tape that a podcast that somebody may pull out four months ago and laugh at me about. But I think right now where we are standing in April 
it is way too early to speculate on what's going to happen in the fall. I understand why people would do it, and I understand send, you know sounding the alarm. Um, I just I think there's a lot of time between now and then, and there are probably some things that have got to happen for us to be able to have a football season um, that are out of our control. Uh, obviously, you got to have regular students on campus, and to do that, you probably have to have social distancing measures relaxed, and to do that, you probably have to have some medical breakthroughs, either either in the form of vaccine or uh, at least some uh, therapeutic type medicines. Um, but you know, we've been at this three or four weeks. We got four or five months before fall semester starts up. There's a lot of time between now and then, and I'm hopeful we'll have a football season. And and the other thing I would say to that, not to jump ahead too far, but um, you know, we like our we like our experiences the way we are accustomed to having them. And for football, that is in the fall. But uh, let's say that we're not able to start back in the fall, and uh, there's a vaccine that's introduced in December that suddenly makes social distancing irrelevant. Um, you know, sign me up for February, March, April football next year, and which would, from a financial standpoint, allow you to still, um, you know, have a season in the calendar year. Uh, then you get into bigger issues, which is what's the economy going to look like at that point? Are there people even going to be able to have money to spend on college football? There's a lot to unpack there, but the point in saying that is, um, I think we'll have football in the fall. I'm optimistic. I'm going to re- remain positive. Uh, if for some reason we aren't able to have football in the fall, I'm hopeful we'll be able to have football sometime in the 2021 school year. So of all the various proposals that are getting tossed around out there, you kind of mentioned one delaying to the winter months. There's also some other just delaying slightly, maybe only playing conference games in the fall, having games with no fans. Of those proposals out there, which of those sound maybe better or worse to you? You know, I, I like having a full season if possible. And I would, I again, I may be in the minority here. I would rather delay when we start playing if it gives us a better chance of having a full season. Um, again, this is so speculative. Uh, it's really dangerous to speculate. Um, because it's hard to plan around speculation. You can, you can to some degree, you can prepare a little bit, but it's really hard to, to go too far down the road because it shifts so much. Um, but I, I think we'll have a, a football season at some point in the 2021 season, school year. I'm hopeful it's in the fall. I think we'll have it with fans in the stands. Now, let's imagine, and I don't want to go too far down this. I'm actually going to circle us back to some some grounded questions about dealing with it. But if you did have a season in the spring, the immediate question that comes to mind is, what do you do with the season that same fall? So the following fall, what do you do then? If you go spring and fall, you have two seasons in one year. What I mean, you'd have to get back to normalcy, right? Assuming you could wave a wand and everything gets back to normal, as you mentioned on that timeline, I'm sure that's being kicked around. Is that a, is it feasible to play football two full seasons in the same year? Yeah, let me, that, that would be speculation. I, my guess is we could, but I don't, I don't know that. I want to be really, I want to make a point here. None of these conversations are going on at any kind of formal level, right? So the SEC ADs aren't getting together. We're not talking about do we have a reduced season? Do we have a shortened season? Do we push it back? Um, we're not talking about, you know, the back-to-back issue of, of spring followed by fall that you brought up. Um, we're not focused on that right now. So I just want to be real careful that this is all just 
spitballing what ifs that that have not been discussed in any kind of formal manner at the at the NCAA or SEC level. Um, but you know, we think about we shut down uh, an entire country basically, not just college athletics. We shut down an entire country in, in a matter of a few days. I think we could figure out how to ramp back up when the time comes, and we may have to do some unusual things when that happens. Um, but I I think our drive to return to normalcy when it's appropriate to do so is going to be pretty strong as a, as a society. And, and we're going to be able to figure some of these things out. I think you're definitely right about that. No matter what's happened, right. Human history tells you innovation, uh, the ability to, to, you know, bounce back, to create new solutions to problems. Those are all things that are definitely in our favor uh, as an AD now facing actual planning scenarios. So the boards I serve on what I do in my day-to-day life as an investor, a lot of discussion goes into how prepared are we budget-wise for what's coming? Do athletic directors or does University of Florida set aside what's akin to like an operational emergency fund? Do you have like a three to four month operational budget that's set on reserve? So if something were to go crazy, the athletic department's able to fund themselves or is the idea that you run very lean and you seek support from boosters? What's sort of the the common, you know, financial 101 for an athletic department? You know, most athletic programs at, at uh, you know, the SEC level have a reserve, um, and that varies. A lot of times the reserve is tied to what your debt service looks like, right? So a school that has a, a lot of debt may have larger reserves. School that, you know, pay as they go, pays as they go may have less reserve because a lot of times you're holding that reserve as, as collateral for the debt you're taking on on understanding that you have it for other uses as well, that you could dip into it from time to time uh, when needs arise. So we have a, um, you probably never have enough in your reserve, but I would, we, we have what most people would probably say is a healthy reserve. And um, it ranges anywhere from 40 to 60 million, depending on the market and depending on where we are at any given time. Since I've been here, uh, I give Jeremy Foley a lot of credit for building that up and, uh, and, and, you know, having the fiscal, soundness to, to, to have that model when he was AD. Um, so, you know, I mentioned we had $140 million um, operating budget last year, or this current fiscal year. And uh, right now, based on the current fiscal year, based on uh, we know we're going to be short some revenue that's been budgeted, but we're also going to be short some expenses that have been budgeted because of, of you know, competition that's not taking place in the spring. We're, we're, we feel like we're going to be neutral for this fiscal year based on what's happening up to this point. Um, so that, that's comforting. So we go into next year, we'll, we'll budget a regular year. Uh, we'll probably be try to be a little bit leaner, understanding we really don't know where this thing is going, but also have the opportunity if we need to, to go in and, and carve out some things if, if it looks like we're going to have a different reality. And that's something really interesting you just mentioned there, since you're not actually having to outlay capital uh, for team expenditures, travel, things like that, you're able to remain relatively budget neutral or even, in fact, budget neutral. At University of Florida, football makes most of the money. Basketball, I think, makes almost the rest of the money. And then the majority of the rest of the sports wind up actually losing money on an annual basis, right? You lay out more to provide them for play than you would bring in. That's correct. Okay. Yeah, so what That's you're correct. saying... We have 21 sports. Yep. Two of them have a net bottom line revenue when you when you back out expenses and that's an amazing an amazing thing i think that some people are aware of and others are not when it comes to running an athletic department and and that's kind of goes to what 
what you just uh, what you just mentioned there. So we, we're facing these challenges. You're faced with all of these things. You sort of risen in your career to get to this point to where you're equipped to deal with them. Obviously, Florida's in a really good position. A lot of other schools we know are not. Their financial situation is much more tenuous, to say the least. What is going on at those schools? What would they be able to do? Would they be able to survive until a spring to play football? Like, is there a level of of Division Two or bottom Division One that would really be seriously immediately in trouble if we were unable to get football off in the fall? Um, you know, there's a lot that goes into answering that question. Um, you know, if if you if you were at a school that did not have much in the way of reserves, um, more than likely. And this, this may be painting with too broad a brush, but more than likely you're relying on university support for your very operation, right? So the thought is if you're, genera- if you're self-funded the way most SEC athletic programs are, then, then you're probably in, in fiscal shape enough to set aside reserves. But um, the schools that, that aren't in that situation probably not only are not self-funded, they're probably deriving a lot of their operational monies from, from the university. So a lot of it comes down to an institutional decision. How much does an institution, does the university value what college athletics brings to their university? And are they willing to continue to support it at whatever level they feel is appropriate? And, you know, there's, that's, that's an age old debate about, you know, how much does the university, how much does athletics, uh, how much value does athletics bring to a campus? Um, from a marketing standpoint, from an opportunity standpoint, from an experience, from a from a alumni and fan engagement standpoint, um, and if uh, forget about if we don't play a game, if we have a recession, which could have very well happen, as you know, because of all this, and suddenly proceeds and monies flowing through universities in general are down. There's some, there may be some schools that have to make some hard decisions relative to where athletics fits in their profile. So let me turn us to this college football season, you know, hopefully if it happens. If you had to guess on how much time a program would need before starting playing football, like in terms of getting players back, getting operations up and running, is there a wind, how big of a window is necessary to actually play a game? You know, uh, as you can imagine, I've had these conversations with some of our sports medicine folks and some of our strength staff. And, you know, Nick Savage is, uh, I had this conversation last week with Nick. And, you know, Nick would tell you he'd prefer three months. He, you know, he could make two months work. Anything beyond that, it, you know, he thinks you're, 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 uh, it's going to be a challenge. Um, I was talking to, to Coach Fulmer at Tennessee recently and, uh, on something totally unrelated, but we were talking about this very thing. And I said, coach, do you remember when you were coaching, the kids weren't, the players weren't in summer school. They were off on their own in the summer and they were showing up into July, early August. And you were doing a conditioning test to see what their fitness level was. And then you were practicing for four weeks and playing a game. He goes, Oh yeah, absolutely. That, that, that happened when coach Spurrier was here at Florida. That, that was the model. So this uh, year round training that we do now, is is a relatively um, recent phenomenon. And it, it's probably for the right reasons, right? There's a lot of conditioning that goes in. There's a lot of player safety that, that you benefit from in that. 
Um, but to answer your question, I, I went the long way to answer your question there, Alan. But um, I think we could figure it out if we had four to six weeks. Now, the medical people and the strength staff will tell you they need more time than that. But I know in the past we have done it on a shorter timeline. Yeah, I think you're you're really raising the idea of like optimal uh, practice and preparation versus what is possible, right? And obviously, you're giving really good historical examples of if this has definitely been done before. It's certainly possible to play full athletic seasons with a lot less preparation, but certainly not optimal given what we know. And you have to balance these things off. Obviously, there's trade offs depending on what goes on. And I think we'd all prefer a football season where we could say people are are safe and and ready. You know, rather than to say, well, let's not do it at all because we can't get there. Uh, there's just so many thoughts and scenarios that, of course, run through, you know, everyone's mind in these situations. And there's actually really so little that we can do to control it, right? I mean, how much control do you, as far as athletic director, someone who has a lot of power, uh, really have in these kind of situations, right? Do you have a lot of control or are you sort of at the mercy of the situation around you? Yeah, I would say not near as much control on a school by school basis. Um, you know, we, we plug in a lot of our governance type issues with the, with the SEC and then they in turn with the other autonomy leagues and, and as an extension, all the division one within the NCAA structure. And it doesn't take very far in, in the groups I just mentioned before it extrapolates to where you have a lot of voices in the room and there's no one voice that's necessarily driving the conversation. Um, so there's, you know, it, it, it will be, uh, if and when that time comes and we have to make a decision on that, there will be a lot of, uh, health experts in the room. There'll be a lot of uh, academic, uh, experts. People understand the, the academic calendar and which we all do, but just make sure we're not missing something there. Um, and then there'll be, uh, uh, you know, all the schools will weigh in from a fairness and competitive standpoint. All right, two questions that we get asked the most. These will be much more normal athletic director questions in a normal time. So we'll ask you the first one. There is so much talk about cheating when it comes to recruiting in college sports, especially college football. I can't tell you how often I hear that if a recruit goes somewhere, it's because someone got paid, there's a bag man, there's something else. And I tend to be of the opinion that when people cheat, they eventually get caught. And that if people are doing bad things, eventually there's evidence. I know you can't, you know, confirm or deny, but is it is it a widespread problem? I mean, on one hand, it seems like this is a horrific problem. It's a cancer in our in our system. On the other hand, it seems like it hardly ever happens. If it does happen, eventually people get caught. I mean, where are we in the landscape of actually being able to ensure fairness amongst recruiting? Uh Wow, that's a that's a that's a deep one there, James. I will, you know, to be honest with you, um, I hear stories like you do, and I hear rumors, and and I uh, beyond that, I get very little in the way of facts or details. And um, rumors are a dime a dozen. Facts and details are very scarce, and without facts and details, you really can't do anything with that. Um, so I kind of put the whole integrity piece into the box of let's control what we can control and we're not going to worry about the other stuff. And, um, we, we talk about at the university of Florida, we want to create a championship experience with integrity. The integrity part's really, really important because without the integrity piece, the championship experience doesn't matter. If you don't have integrity, the championship doesn't matter. You look at, uh, what major league baseball was going through before 
the coronavirus came up and, and, you know, they're talking about the Houston Astros and uh, they admitted to having a scheme that went against the rules of the game. And everyone's questioning, okay, how valid is that championship now? They have admitted that they didn't play by the rules. They did not have integrity where the rule came into play. So is the championship even matter now? So they have totally watered down their championship by the fact that they, they didn't play by the rules. So, um, but where, where I match from my chair, I worry about, let's make sure the Gators, our coaches, our alumni, our fans, our athletes are, are doing things with integrity. We're going to follow the rules. Um, I would love for everybody else to take the same approach. Um, but candidly, I want to make sure everybody at the university of Florida is doing it. And, and I don't spend a lot of time worried about what the others are doing. I just have to say, I'm really encouraged by that answer, Scott. I, would want the University of Florida to operate in no other fashion. So um, I love that response. We'll take care of ourselves and let the chips fall where they may. And yes, I 100% agree that a championship without integrity is not really worth pursuing. So I'll let, I just want to chime in there and say that, but I'll let James ask the last question. Yeah, and, and a, amen to that as well. I second that. And I know Alan and I talk about this a lot. We talked about it before the call, um, you know, Scott, but obviously getting to know you and to those listeners who don't know you, uh, you know, it's, it's tremendous to have you here at the helm, uh, you know, your humility, your leadership, obviously your ability to say what you know and don't know. And just really, I think your overall guidance and what you desire for the program is just so healthy, in my opinion, in a day and age when it's very easy to chase a shiny object or to take shortcuts. So certainly Alan and I both really appreciate that. And I know a lot of Gator fans do as well. And I've got one last one for you that gets asked all the time too. It seems to be just something that's like taken as a matter of fact, do athletic directors have a permanent short list of coaches that they're going to hire in case their coach leaves? Or is this something that's looked at when the coach actually leaves? Um, you know, it's, it's so funny because I watched a recent, recently watched a press conference with a friend of mine who's an athletic director at another school. And he was asked this question and he said, absolutely, we all have a list. And I'm going to admit, I don't have a list. I try to stay um, current on, you know, who's out there, who's doing a good job. Uh, I, you know, I'm enough of a fan of the sport that, that I keep up with um, teams and I keep up with coaches and leaders and they're, you know, I, I'm aware of who I think is doing a good job and, and I'm aware of what the marketplace looks like from time to time, but um, I don't spend a lot of time on that until I get in a situation where it's something I need to pay a lot of attention to. And, you know, we had a football coaching change a couple of years ago and, you know, I, I'm, I'm always aware of the marketplace, but I probably got a little more in tune with the marketplace as we got in the middle of that search. And so probably the answer is everybody's a little different. I don't waste a lot of time coming up with lists because we're fortunate at Florida. We have a lot of stability in our coaching staffs and uh, I, I don't have to, I don't have to spend a lot of time doing that, but, uh, in sports, especially your high-profile sports, where it's easy to keep up with football coaches and basketball coaches and baseball, um, softball, whatever, I have a pretty good idea of what who's out there. Um, and then in the sports that may not get as much coverage, uh, I, I try to pay attention to, to what the good programs are and who, who the good leaders are in those programs. All right, Scott. Lastly, I don't know if that answers your question. I may have tap danced around that pretty good. No, that was that was good. I, I mean, I think that's what we wanted to hear. Um, Anything else you'd like to say to Gator Nation out there? I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna say, guys, I'm a little disappointed that 
that y'all didn't ask me my opinion of running fire zones on third down <laughs> against a, a trips formation because I know that's what you guys specialize on in this podcast, and I was a little disappointed you didn't ask for my expertise in that area. If you, if you want me to, I can. I've got several questions hey, we, that would that would be perfect for you. There's plenty of time to come on in the fall, and you can give some of your opinions on uh, what I, uh, schemes are we running. I'd be way out of my league. I'm serious. I'm, I'm poking at you guys. Y'all do a great job. I, uh, listening to you guys in the fall, as I am on, I, I get up and I go for runs early in the morning. Um, and, and I listen to you guys. It's kind of a guilty pleasure. I don't, I don't admit to many people what I listen to, but I, I give you guys a listen. Y'all do a great job. And both of you really do a good job of understanding the sport of football and breaking it down. And, uh, uh I always learn a little bit of something, a little bit about uh, the sport that I didn't know before when I listen to you guys. So y'all keep up the great job. Well, thank you so much. And yeah, just a real pleasure to have you on today. We feel really grateful you took some time for us. And again, it is fantastic to have an AD of your caliber at the helm during a time like this. So really thankful that you're in Gainesville. Well, thank you guys. I love uh, love being a Gator. Appreciate what you guys do. And y'all stay safe. We'll get through this. Yes, sir. You too, Scott. Talk to you soon. Wow. What a great segment with Scott. Uh, you know, getting to know him, he's just refreshingly candid. He'll answer questions, as you heard him say there. And of course, both Alan and I had no idea that he was going to graciously say what he said about the podcast. Uh, we're certainly thrilled to hear that. I'm sure all of you that listen as well will will find it comforting to know that the athletic director happens to listen to some episodes with you as well, uh, which is pretty great. So whether Amazing. you're jogging or you're in the car or you're in a classroom or you're somewhere else, we know you're all over the country and the world listening to this podcast, and we are very grateful for that. Of course, we don't have, like Scott mentioned, any analytical content to go through, unfortunately, which is our bread and butter. But don't worry, Alan, the director of all things personnel and sort of people news oriented, has put together a slate for us to discuss, which makes me a little bit nervous. I always get nervous discussing the actual things that are like just opinionated. What do we think about this stuff, which is kind of funny. Uh, But here we go. We're going to get right into this. We've got like a, a three-pack of questions and a four-pack of questions. And I think it's going to be things that, that you as Gators probably kick around at home with your friends as well, as well as some concrete discussion about what to really do about the football program and what it's looking like. Alan, just jump us right into it. Okay, so obviously the Gators, as, long as, as well as every college football team out there, lost spring practice, lost their spring game, are losing summer conditioning, summer workouts. How does that affect a team, theoretically, since we've never done it before, headed into the fall? Oh, incredibly significantly. And I can give you a real-world example from my own life last summer, which was not coaching college football, but I was at the helm of our professional flag football team, quarterbacked by Danny Werfel. We had Michael Vick on the team, uh, a bunch of other NFL guys like Jason Avant. And we, unfortunately, had our practice time cut down from four to five weeks to two. So we had two weeks to put a camp together to cut a roster from 50 down to 14. It was extremely difficult. We wound up blowing a 34 to 19 lead with five minutes left in this game and losing in overtime to you know what is the best team in flag football and a team called Fighting Cancer. Had we had our time to prepare, there is no doubt we would have won. The main reason we lost had to do with communication, especially in the defensive end, Uh, Little things that you get cleaned up when you have time to practice and install your playbook on both sides were not there. And with college football, that's only magnified times 100, right? Because there's way more to deal with. There are more players to deal with. It is more complicated. There are more things to teach. You have a lot of young guys that have to get into your system. 
And right now, not only do you not have spring ball or potentially summer ball, you can't gather as a team. And virtual coaching only gets you so far. And sure, you can send all your guys to playbook and study it. We'll get in a Zoom meeting. But that is not the same thing as seeing these things in person. Um, So I imagine if I were coaching, I'd get really creative trying to find ways to get my players mental reps. But it is a ginormous effect when you talk about player development, team development, chemistry development across the board. The only benefit we have here is if I hear a single coach complain about it, that's going to be wrong because every single team is dealing with the same thing. And I was in the worst condition because we had a team of all new people playing against a very established team that's played together for 10 years. That's a big disadvantage, right? And I'm not complaining about that, just kind of highlighting the realities of needing every practice you have. So my last comment on this, Alan, is the younger your team is, the more frustrated this is going to make you. If you have a veteran team, you actually gain a comparative advantage on the field because you are going to start much higher with your output than other teams are. So the more veteran your team is, the oddly beneficial this could be for how you start the season uh, because, again, the younger team has a lot of ground to make up and they've lost a lot of their key development time to make up for that. Yeah, a big thing in spring ball is, of course, installing new systems, getting new players into new roles, new starters, and you lose so much of that. You you don't have a baseline to establish things to work on in the summer. So a lot of what you're going to work on in the summer, you're basically setting up in the spring. And so without having that, you're basically just kind of triaging. So the fall is like week to week where, you know, we're trying to win games. We're trying to like fight these battles. In the spring, you can take a step back, work on the bigger picture concepts of what you're trying to do as a team. And the coaches lose all that. Uh, so... I think it affects every program, like you said, somewhat equally, but not always as equally because not all conditions are the same. But everybody's losing that time frame. Um, everybody's losing some of that workout stuff. Now, I think what we'll see is like which individual players kept themselves in shape or out there running or figuring out a way to do bodyweight exercises or whatever they can do, who's still learning, who's still improving, and who didn't. I think every program – and the country's going to experience a pretty wide swath of people and how they prepared, how they uh, kept themselves in shape and things like that. And there is going to be a benefit, Alan, to the coaches and the staffs that get creative and innovative here. Like we kind of mentioned, how can we give drills to our athletes? What can we do to give them at-home workouts? How can we stay on top of their their progress and their planning? And, and the staffs that aren't as good at that, that aren't as on top of that, are going to suffer uh, You know the ill effects of that. Uh, But it can't be stated enough that most likely what's going to happen, Alan, is you're going to see teams begin the year with much simpler offenses and defenses, especially if you're you're an inexperienced team and you're a young team. You are going to greatly simplify what you are doing, and you're going to have to put that stuff in over the course of the season. So this is interesting. Who should this really benefit if we're kind of taking this further down the rabbit hole? This should really benefit a Florida Gator team. What we've said all along is that the Gators, especially under Dan Mullen, are actually extremely good at doing these type of things. Very organized, very prepared, very articulate. Don't miss any kind of detail-oriented preparation when it comes to player prep. Now, of course, we disagree you know, quite a bit with some of the scheme stuff that goes on, but that's not what's really happening here. This is the core base prep for a team. We have a veteran team. We do have some new guys, but we also, I think, have a coach that's proven 
to be pretty darn good at this side of football. So this is an interesting scenario. You think, of course, the best person at this is, is Nick Saban, who I think you're already seeing being quoted about kind of his structure and his plan. Uh, but Dan Mullen, obviously, I think, excels that as well. So you're going to see, I think, some differences, especially in the first month or two of the season, assuming we start in the fall, Alan, that I think really identifies how well some of these coaches were able to get their teams quickly prepared and what they did during this, you know, three, four, five, six, however long it is, month-long break with no actual gathering of your entire football team. All right. How does this pandemic, epidemic, COVID-19, affect the Gators entirely over the course of next year? Well, I think you began to touch on this, is that we have a relative advantage in that we have a ton of continuity in our coaching staff and in our personnel. So let's start with the opposite of that. Let's say you're hiring a new coach. Let's say you're FSU. You've got no time to install your playbook, your culture, your uh, overall scheme and philosophy. So you can't just pick up where you left off and continue to build on those things. You've got nothing to build on. Those programs are, I think, in a deep hole comparatively. And then there's maybe more middle ground where you've got a team like Georgia or LSU, you know, depending on how you want to look at it, how, how new is their system going to be with some of their changes. But let's say take Georgia, fired their previous offensive coordinator, hired a new offensive coordinator. They have a new quarterback coming in. They don't have time to install that offense at all. They don't have the reps to see what this guy is good at, what he's not good at in the system. So let's move on and take a look at the Gators, which we're much more familiar with. Almost the entire coaching staff is the same, except for a tight ends coach, right? Uh, you've got this trio of Billy Gonzalez, Billy Gonzalez, John Hevesy, and Dan Mullen who've worked together for a long time. You've got a defensive coaching staff that's been together now for a couple of years. You've got a largely returning team. Remember, as we said, almost everybody who could come back did come back. And you've got a returning quarterback, which is maybe – just pure gold in this scenario that you already know what he can do. You know what his weaknesses are. You can help him improve. You can coach him through the finer things because he's already knows the plays. He already knows what you're trying to accomplish big picture. This could have a tremendous cumulative effect whenever the college football season is played. Uh, the Gators already have a lot of built-in advantage. Like we said, with um, some of the rivals, you know, having to change a lot all of our returning people, that could just be multiplied for UF, especially at the beginning of the year. As a general piece of wisdom in life, if you want to undergo a significant change, a shock to your system, if you will, you want to do so from a point of tremendous stability. Those are the people or the situations or the organizations that are going to be able to react the best. And that's kind of what you just set the stage for, Alan. Florida right now is in a in a tremendous position of stability. And that's also the roster that we have, right? You could have the same coaching staff but have all new players and be young and be in a tremendous position of instability. And something like COVID-19 actually drastically alters your ability to prepare, which will give you a lower result than you otherwise would have gotten. So you're absolutely correct. It's a very interesting position for Florida to be in, assuming that football does kick off in a calendar year where all of our players that came back are still able to play. Things are able to continue on in the way that they are. We have most of everything you could want to be dealing with some sort of delay like this. 
And that should benefit us relative to our opponents if we're able to get back onto the gridiron. Now, if you could wave a wand and say, Alan, we're back to practicing in June and they give everyone their spring practice time, I think you could make an argument that really most teams would be all the way back to where they would have been. But if we're saying four weeks, as Scott mentioned, four to six weeks and you're starting your season, tremendous advantage, I think, for the Gators. Yeah, and that doesn't mean that the Gators are going to win every game or by the end of the year things won't have leveled out somewhat, especially if you're going to get into conference championship games and the playoff and stuff like that. But uh, especially early on, it's, I think, a huge, huge advantage if the football season takes place as we think. Okay, we asked Scott Strickland this question about various proposals about what might happen during the season, delaying it slightly, moving it all the way to winter, playing games with no fans. James, do you have any either preferences or just thoughts on each of those things? I think if I'm if I'm approaching it as an AD, you start with the most that you could do and you work backwards and you have a plan for what is least important to most important. What's most important by far, and we didn't get into this in the interview because it's it's fairly obvious, is is the TV contract. If these games are not televised, then they're not worth playing because these athletic departments are going under, which you heard Scott mention. So you have got to have your TV money, your gate receipts. Which is way more than like the gate. Correct. Your gate receipts, hosting a home game, all these things pale vastly in comparison to TV contracts. So first is, what must I do to get my TV in play? Where could I play? How could I do it? How can I make sure I get that TV money? Because you actually would have a tremendously high audience watching these games, of course, on online. We've already seen this already with what's going on with Netflix and other things. And anything live is getting a lot of views, including something like WWE, which just had to do their their stuff, right, in like a closed arena. So it's been done. It's already happened. It could be done. Then I think you work for things that you would really want, which would be, of course, to have at least some fans there. Maybe you're limiting that. Maybe you're putting them away from each other. I have no idea. You want some sort of atmosphere. Um, All the way down to something like moving it entirely to the winter or the spring, which I think creates a vast number of problems we talked about. You throw off your calendar only for one year, but for possibly two, you mess up so many things. Early enrollees, everything else goes on, scheduling issues, venue issues, travel issues, hotel issues in the towns that you're living in. I mean, that is a domino effect of difficulty. But I think at a high level, Alan, what's on most ADs' minds right out of the gate is I have to make sure I secure the TV revenue. And if I can, I've got to try to play home games. And the reason for that, of course, is economic. But as you heard Scott mention, you may not get that many people to come to your home games. You may lose your sponsorships that help fund money into your program because they're there for the eyeballs that are at the stadium. So it's this ripple effect of finances that are real. And I think that you have to look at those and say, what brings in the most revenue? How do I achieve those goals? And I scale, 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 scale until the end. I get obviously to if I just have the student athletes playing and it's safe, I must do that. I have a duty to do that because at the end of the day, despite everything I just mentioned, it's for the student athletes to be participating in their seasons. That is the ultimate goal. You've got to do all you can to make that happen, but you definitely would want to work backwards to get there. You wouldn't want to start there and say, well, it's fine if everything else goes away because then you lose all the other sports and all the other kids that are participating, they're all gone too. So you kind of have to, you have to look at it that way. Yeah, it's going to put such a financial strain on every athletic department in the country to not have football be played uh, in some fashion. I think it would be supremely weird not to have fans there. Some of the pageantry and amazingness of college football is about the crowds but give me a college football game played in an empty stadium over no college football at all i think that's a it doesn't have to be like fans or nothing um 
In terms of delaying it and playing like fewer games or having a full season, you know, I kind of go back and forth about this. Um, obviously, with the Gators non-conference games, I wouldn't mind losing those at all. Um, those don't have to be played, in my opinion. Um, but there's some great non-conference games out there that I wouldn't want to lose featuring some really powerhouse programs. So if it just had to be conference games, I think, and if it, that would only be because moving into the winter or spring would just not be feasible for all the dominoes falling. Like you said, um, I don't know it. It's going to be really challenging for college football fans. If there's no, uh, games played, but it's going to be even more challenging for every collegiate athlete to lose football. It's not just you lose football and oh well. It's you're talking about your swim teams, your golf teams, your tennis teams. All the women's sports are going to be in jeopardy. Um, and who knows? We might come back after this if there's no football played and college sports look way different because so many universities had to cut so many programs that they just couldn't afford to float anymore. And I think that is at the heart of the quote of Iowa State's athletic director, uh, Jamie Pollard, who mentioned that this would be an ice age. And that's not for the programs like Florida or Alabama, right, or the big ones. In fact, what you would really have is some sort of consolidation. You might have what some people have suggested, Alan, for a while, where you would have like a mega conference with 18 or 20 teams. And, and that's way projecting, but college football would not die. But a lot of college football programs would definitely die. Uh, as you heard us mention, universities wouldn't have the money. If we scale this out and assume there's no football and they go bankrupt, universities are not going to have the money they have because states won't have the money they have. Ripple, 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 ripple. And of course, the ones that survive are the ones that are best prepared for it. It would go on. It would be way different, which again goes to the heart of those quotes. That's too far down the road. Hopefully that, of course, does not happen. Uh, but no matter what, I think the key to these proposals is if you're an AD, you're going to do everything you can do to put a televised football season out there. If it's six games, if it's four games in a playoff, whatever it is to capture as much of that revenue as you possibly can is going to be done. And I think you're going to see them make every possible effort to do so right now. As Scott said, they can afford to be in a waiting period. They probably really have until the 1st of July before things are going to get really emergent. They're going to wait, wait, wait. And at that point in time, it's going to be, you know, a speed ride about what to do and how to do it. But right now, I think they're all just hoping, you know, like the rest of us are, that you can return to life somewhat as normal uh, sometime sooner rather than later. So, yeah, there's a couple bright spots, a couple negative spots in terms of this planning. You know, this is not the NFL where you could just have a centralized authority and go, we're going to do this and this is how it's going to do. And we're going to solve this in two hours there's such a sprawling ecosystem of college football that there is no there is no governing body. Everything is independent, kind of. What, what do different conferences think? What do different state university systems think? What do different presidents, athletic directors think? Getting all those people on the same page might be extremely complicated. Now, the one thing that binds them all together is the money. The money is so big that they will work over time to get it figured out. They're not going to just go, oh, well, I guess we're not having football this year. So there's obstacles, but there's also going to be an extremely motivated group of people to see this happen. Indeed, there are. Let's switch some gears and get into some fun questions, as you've called them. You've yeah, got, just some stuff that's yeah. like floating around the internet. People are talking about. I like it. Time. You've got the Mount Rushmore 
of greatest skaters. There are four people on the real Mount Rushmore, so you're going to get four of them. We're going to pick only the modern era, so this is Steve Spurrier and onward. Yeah, so apologies to Jack Youngblood, Wilbur Marshall, uh, even Emmett Smith. Even Steve Spurrier himself. Yes. Yeah, so those guys, obviously fantastic, would clearly make a cup. We're going modern era, and you're going to start first with your first name, and then I'm going to, I'm going to ping pong one back at you. Okay, uh, and if you have this person on your list, you can comment on that this time too. I'll go with... Maybe the most recent person on this list for me, uh, one Timothy Tebow. I think it has to start here. He's, I don't know if he's just the best. He's certainly the most iconic player in modern Florida history, maybe in all of college football history, honestly. He's such a looming presence. What he accomplished, both, you know, I think culturally for the university, but also on the field, the stats, the Heisman. I mean, I think you almost have to take him first. Yeah, you do. And he's he's on there too, not just because of what he did on the field, but how much he loved being a Florida Gator. Uh, and I think that's key, right? Um, for me, this Mount Rushmore list, I, I went back and forth. And I'm going to talk more about it. It's like you, you want the people on Mount Rushmore to almost be like patriots for your cause. And obviously, Tim was a was a patriot for the Florida Gator cause. He loved the Gators. He still does love the Gators. And that, you know, d- despite his play, which was incredible and transcendent, no matter how you feel about him. Uh, obviously, one of the greatest to ever play the game. Uh, he also had everything else that you would want. So for sure, obvious candidate. Yeah, we don't even have to Rushmore. spend time explaining you know it. All right, why don't you go with your second person? I'll go with another very obvious one, of course, Danny Warfel. Let's go. Right? So Tim Tebow before Tebow. Danny, if you're listening, congratulations. You made, you made Rushmore. The, you made the Mount Rushmore. I almost didn't put you in, uh, but I figured, hey, I had to, you know. I'm your coach right now, uh, so you're in. <laughs> no, but Danny, obvious candidate for all the same reasons that Tim was. Um, Danny's story, of course, a great one. And, you know, his his sort of time was very different than Tim's was here at UF, especially with Spurrier coaching him, as Danny has said many times before. Didn't really enjoy the, the, uh, the hey, you're the guy for all these years that Tebow did. He was constantly always kind of grinding for his spot. Uh, but a legendary figure, legendary yeah, player, great. You know, first national championship that he brought. I mean, has always holds such an elevated spot. Uh, he's on my Mount Rushmore as well. Uh, love Danny Werfel, what he accomplished. This, if you go back and look at his statistics, they're still incredible. The game has changed a lot, and stats are higher. But his still hold up. Not like you go back to some Heisman winners. And you're like, really? He threw for like a thousand yards. That's too exaggerated. But he's still an incredible player. I think someone who maximizes talent and ability um, and really was just an icon for this program came from, you know, wasn't the guy, everyone who wasn't the all world recruit that Tim was, but still led the Gators to some unprecedented places. So um, good job, Danny. Glad you made our Mount Rushmore you made both of ours. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to go next year. You ready? I'm ready. All right. This player is the most talented player I've ever watched in person. I've never seen anybody else do things like they did on the football field. And they have a little bit of a checkered past, and that is one Percy Harvin. Percy is unreal. I still have never seen anybody play the way he played to be able to cut and accelerate all at the same time. Unreal. From the moment he stepped on the field. And again, he wasn't on the field all the time. Very erratic personally, you know, injury-wise, things like that. But when he was on the field, he was electric. I've never watched anybody like that. And this is this is really hard for me, Alan, because 
if you're talking about on-field contributions, Percy is hands down an obvious Mount Rushmore. If we're going to accept his really lack of, I think from those that know him, lack of care when he was here for, for Florida at all, as a team, as a player, as a school, he didn't care at all. He only cared about himself. Rarely showed up to practice, did whatever he wanted to do. That's not a guy who deserves to be on Mount Rushmore. In Percy's defense, he's come around more. He's been around the program more. I don't think Percy's a bad guy at all. I know Percy a little bit. He's a nice guy. But if we're trying to make this happen, is he worthy of being on Mount Rushmore? I'm going to leave that out for a second because <laughs> the, the problem I then had, Alan, was, well, Rex Grossman, I feel like, should be on my Mount Rushmore. But he also was not exactly an exemplary gator, especially towards the end. A lot of rumors about drugs and cocaine and coming over drunk and hung over to practice during the Ron Zook era. Bad things. Not what you want your ambassador to do. Well, this isn't a Mount Rushmore of ambassadors. So this is just not, the greatest. It's not Rushmore. It's like you look at your program and think, do I want a person? I want them to care. They can make mistakes. I want them to care. Did Rex care at the end? I don't know. Rex really cared. He loved being a Gator. He, he should have been the first sophomore to win the Heisman. He was absolutely robbed. He's an incredible football player. Indeed. He was just a gunslinging baller. And because I'm going to put Rex on there, it, it leads me to a quandary for my fourth. But I'm going to put Rex Grossman as my third. Um, I have three quarterbacks. I know that's absurd. I'm like the Heisman voters putting three quarterbacks on there. But these three guys, I think you can you can look at the era of Gator football and you can assign them to these three guys. You sort of have the Rex era, the Tebow era, and I think you have the Warfel era. And then you have other guys that were nice. But these were the three main eras true. of Florida football. And I think about it that way. I, I think that's true. All of them should have won the Heisman Trophy. One of them had some transgressions towards the end of his career. He's not a bad guy. You know, I just think things happen. Things get difficult. I just, I'm just conflicted about my Mount Rushmore, what the definition means. But he's on there. Rex is there. So you've got your colorful figure, Rex Grossman, on there. And uh, who's your fourth then? Well, before, let me just comment on Rex for a second. I, he was definitely in the running for me. Um, I mean, he's obviously an incredible player. He was the quarterback while you know, for a big part of the time while I was in college and early on after, I mean, he's amazing. Uh, again, I didn't want to really put three quarterbacks on there. So that's hard. And when I think about the best players, I feel like he's just a notch below those other three. And here I'm going to throw a wild card at you here. Um, I wanted to pick a defensive player. So, Florida's always known for its offense, but we have had some incredible defenses. So then when you turn your eye towards that defensive side of the ball, it gets tough. Guys like Lito Shepard, Alex Brown. You know, even if you want to do something else weird, like put a pouncy on there, like in terms of guys who had the most success. Um, This feels, this doesn't, maybe I should just pivot and put Rex on here, but I want to put Joe Hayden on here. Um, this is a guy who's was a baller from the moment he stepped on campus, was a part of some of the best teams in Florida history. You know, is still uber successful in the NFL. Not that that is the, you know, end all be all of this metric. Otherwise, we wouldn't have Tim or Danny on here, probably, or even Rex. But I wanted to highlight someone on the defense. I don't know if that's exactly how the Mount Rushmore should work. I went in that direction. So I'm going to put Joe Hayden. On my Mount Rushmore. That's funny because you were being very coy and silent when we discussed this pre-show. And I was saying that I really want to put a defender on there. And I started naming defenders. And I said, but you don't have, Florida doesn't have. The iconic. An Ed Reed of Florida. No. 
we have a lot of really good defenders. That takes nothing away from, as you said, so many guys that have been very, very good. And you can name like really quality heart and soul guys, really good linemen. You know, we've had players across the board, lots of good corners, but you just don't have that guy. Like on the other side, all three of those guys were that kind of guy. And it's easier to do it on offense, but some schools do have those guys. On well, defense. if you have like an all-time defensive end, if you're North Carolina, Julius Peppers is the first guy you put on there. Something like that. Exactly. And that's what we're, you know, you got a Bosa, right? I think mm-hmm. if you're looking at that, or, or you have a J.J. Watt, or you have guys that are there. We just haven't had that kind of guy. So I did the same thing you did. And then I walked myself into, well, logically, and I like to be as logical as possible if I allowed Rex to get in there, who definitely waned off towards the end. Then I have to allow Percy, who, while he put the Gator uniform on, as any of his friends who played with him will attest, he was insane. He was the guy you wanted to get the ball. And so there is part of that it's being a good teammate because you want to win and you're compelling your team to win. And again, I don't think Percy's a malicious bad guy. I'm not saying Rex is either. It's nothing to do with it. Hopefully all of you understand my reasoning here. It comes down to like, would this person get in front of a microphone and declare their allegiance and love for your program? Questionable. But I'm going to go with Tebow, Warful, Rex, and Percy. Percy, of course, is a transcendent talent. Rex, as the the unheralded, no one knows who I am, I'm going to send in videotapes. Yes, his dad sent videotapes back then in the year 2000, 1999, to Steve Spurrier. Steve Spurrier saw the videotapes, gave him an offer. He was really always thought to just be a guy to come into the program, be a body. Brock Berlin, the all-world right. number one recruit was supposed to get it. He beats him out, works for it, works for it, works for it, becomes incredible, has a nice career in the NFL for a while, plays in a Super Bowl. And then you have you know the guys in Tebow and Warfel, right, with differing levels of acclaim and success there. So those are my four. I'm conflicted about it, but I like it. Joe Hayden for you, very creative. I yeah, like that you went in that direction. I, I mean, don't know if I look at I don't know if I look at Mount Rushmore and think, oh, Joe Hayden. He's, yeah, he's I don't either. So this is player. <laughs> this is the this is the problem. I wanted to honor all those great Florida defenses, yeah. and you know, there's been some guys. You know, maybe should have been Alex Brown. You know, maybe could have been Lido Shepard. What would Joe Hayden just like a is the the face of Florida defense up there? And he is. I'll say this about Joe. Joe loves the Gators. Right. He he would be a guy that in a second is your brand ambassador. Sure, and that's he a good is point. All about them. So I feel super great about that. I think if I had to pick a defender, and this is purely emotional, it's Alex Brown, because for me, watching him jump the snap count against Tennessee yeah. will forever be one of my greatest Gator exactly. memories. It was a legendary performance. He never really lived up to, you can't, up to that level after that, but a very solid player. But if I think of the guy that immediately hits me in my time, again, it's that. Well, it's hard because you're thinking also, if I'm thinking defensive prowess, you know, a little bit, you know, Alex Brown gets NFL, and he's a solid NFL player, but he's not dominant. We don't have a, a guy who is just so feared. Like even this year, Chase Young with Ohio State, I don't know if he'll go down as Ohio, but it, we're immediately on the broadcast. They're talking about him the entire time. And we've had some unbelievably talented guys come through here. Lots of defensive tackles, lots of linebackers, plenty of safeties. So it felt weird to go nobody on the defense. And, and then other than Percy, he's not really a wide receiver. He's kind of a wide receiver. You know, there's a ton of great wide receivers that you could have put in there too. I mean, but how do you choose between Rito Anthony, I kill your green, um, some of the iconic guys, even, you know, Jabbar Gaffney. There's a ton of guys who've had a big impact, but there's no, like, immediate guy. So that was a hard part. The fourth guy was hard for me. And it could be Rex Grossman. I would listen to that. And if 
if we were on a committee and it was like Rex Grossman, I'd be like, yeah, sure. It's a fun exercise, though, just to get into like what all goes into it. So you kind of recognize how, how tough it is maybe to pick that, especially at a school like Florida. Alan, you just went into it, so I'll just tee you up on it. Now you're out Mount Rushmore, but at the base of Mount Rushmore, you have like your your walk of, of favorite players. Here's right. the guys you can put beneath your Mount Rushmore. You can imagine your four. Now you can put your favorite players beneath them. And you just named a couple that are on there for sure. Jacquez right. Green, right? I kill your Drill Anthony. Who would be some other guys that are just your favorites? This does not have to be any particular reason at all. Right. No this isn't statistic best. based thing. This is like I want them to be there. So when I'm thinking Gators, they bring me whatever memory they bring me. Right. So this is a just I really love watching these guys play for one reason or another. Um we'll, we'll just we'll go back and forth here. And we'll just maybe name like three or four. Well, what's our podcast? We'll do whatever we want. Okay. Number one, the guy that came to my mind who's not going to be in any kind of Hall of Fame or All-American list but was Brandon James. Loved watching him return punts. The most dangerous punt returner that we've ever had consistently back there. Had a ton of returns and should have had several more that were called back because of you know stupid ticky-tack holding penalties or weird things like that. He was so much fun for such a little guy. Um, and again, a guy who, you know, maybe almost didn't get a scholarship because of his size, but ended up being just electric for us as a punt returner. Will Greer. (laughs) Put it out there. I have to put it out there. He's Uh, he's one of my favorite Gator players and he barely played, but, uh, you know, he was, he came out at the time this podcast really had come out. It was a chance for us to kind of give our first really big analytical opinions on what was going on. There was that competition between him and Treon and a bunch of other things. And so I think from my memory bank, that old Miss game was that we're, we're back. And then two weeks later, you're not back. But emotionally, it felt like that midterm trying to get back moment with this guy who was felt like really good. Uh, and so for me, I think just memory wise, he was the guy that maybe got away. Uh, but was a lot of fun and oddly like a favorite. I mean, he's an undefeated Gator quarterback. We had the little run together. It was magical. It was fun. And I think for podcast purposes, a lot of people out there, of course, will get enjoyment that I just <laughs> named him. But I think that's also real. Like that's I just great. have warm, fuzzy feelings about Will Greer here at Florida. <laughs> uh, I love it. I love it. Next guy I'll mention, Brandon Spikes. And I could mention several linebackers, Brandon Seiler here, uh, some people, but Spikes, the intensity that he brought, the leadership. I think everyone remembers that play with him just knocking Noshan Marino flat on his back. You know, gets a little aggressive there with Noshan, but sets the tone. I mean, awesome middle linebacker. Was going to bring the wood every time, just lay people out. But also was a really talented player, too. Um, Not the fastest guy, but in the right spot. Um, Really sure-handed tackler. All, All those kinds of things. Um, but just big personality too. And I th- that doesn't always translate well, but I thought with him, it was really fun to have him on the team. Yeah, I think I think that's true. You know, you think of a guy that just encompasses all those things you mentioned. It's, it's, it's definitely a guy like that. For me, I was a Hurricane fan, you know, really from the 90s up until I came to school in the year 2000. But even then, watching Riddell Anthony, Jack West Green, Ike Hilliard, watching those guys, like it sticks out in my mind. Certainly. You know, playing the college football games, watching those passes, seeing what's happening. So oddly enough, even though I really wasn't, like I wasn't against the Gators, but I wasn't a fan, those guys collectively would get like a single group together as a trio that are going to be there as my, as my favorite Gator players, which I guess is an homage to the fact that I was aware of them, which is a big thing. I think when you're a kid, you kind of hate everyone else like your own team. 
but but those three I think just stick out again as like a you know just that that sugar bowl moment that yes. play I mean that is one I kill you're just yeah. pausing like in seemingly just in midair I mean it's insane yes. you can watch that play thirty times now and you, there's not a lot of plays you can think of like it so for me those memories were were, were significant they were big. Uh, I can't imagine what it would have been like as like a really diehard Gator fan at that time. And I'm sure they make a lot of people's lists for that reason. But for me, uh, they'd be up there. I'm going to mention a guy whose nickname is The Freak, Javon Curse. You know, I don't know that he ever, his production on the field wasn't as intense as just his potential. But a guy who could play so many different styles and positions and they used him creatively. But was just a, a terror out there at times, you know, and didn't really live up into it at the NFL. He was good in the NFL for a brief time, but injuries kind of derailed him a little bit too. But a really iconic defender for those um, teams that he played for who were, you know, he had a lot of success as well and, you know, wasn't the dominant guy all the time, but would certainly flash and have some huge moments out there in the field. And it's weird for me now to pick some of these guys, having gotten to know them. I don't tend to work that way, but I, I'm definitely putting Major Wright in there. Okay. Major Wright provided so many, just an era of yesteryear, big hit moments that right. will never be allowed again in football. And there's a weird the championship game for that. Oklahoma, the championship game in general, and obviously getting to know Major, his personality is fantastic. It backs up how he feels about that kind of stuff. But, you know, I think in general, like when I think of a Florida defender that like brought me joy watching him play, I mean, he was an eraser back there. And I just love, love that about safeties in general. So I think for me, he he makes that list. Well, the eraser, Reggie Nelson, I'm sure you know, I have to mention him if you use the word eraser. But uh, Lito Shepard, also a guy that I love, a guy who t- returned punts, um, really excellent. I mean, there's a lot of defensive backs. I mean, we're in the running for DBU. We like to claim that even though as other schools do, but a ton of those guys, but Lito certainly stands out to me as um, one of those game breaker type players, both returning punts and as a defensive back. Yeah. And this one, this one you can't really mention anymore. It's taboo. But if we're just going to talk about football, I remember watching Aaron Hernandez at the time he was playing and he obviously talent wise, you know, was, was insane, was off the charts. You can imagine that Patriots team, if, if he wouldn't have made the choices he had made in life to have who they had on that team together at tight end would have been incredible. And I think th- what we're saying about all of these players is you sort of remember them as the player, but you also remember them as the person. And I'm not someone who can dis, you know disassociate both of them. And I think the reason I'm mentioning this is obviously the reason that Aaron Hernandez is probably not a favorite player of anyone anymore is because of what happened. Uh, right. But in a world where he had made different choices, he'd be right there. I mean, watching him play the game the way he played the game uh, was incredible. You know, he was he was a tight end before tight ends really had begun to do what he did as kind of pure route runners as the kind of guys you see now. Uh, you know, so we could go on and on, I think, back and forth all day with so many guys that were really entertaining, especially with with our years. And when you were there, I think you favor some guys, even 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 really oddball guys like Channing Crowder. Certainly was just an off the wall, talented, talented player. Kind of did what he wanted on a discipline, you know, Linus discipline. I'm trying to say that word and I'm not saying it right. A team that lacked discipline under Ron Zook. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we have not lacked uh, players to like. And I'm sure you have your own that we have not mentioned uh, that we can go on on Emmett Smith, Eric Rett, you know, on and on. Seatric Faison, a lot of people loved watching Seatric play. For sure. And, uh, you know, it could be never ending. But let's play this game. Let's go into an actual game 
It is the last drive of the game. You have to pick a play caller, a quarterback, a receiver, and a running back. Go. So I, I thought about, do I want to create like a unit of these people who play together? Would that help? But I'm not going to do that. Um, if I'm going to go play caller, coach, uh, I think I have to go Spurrier. His flair for the dramatic, his you know kind of sense of when to do what, his creativity. Um, so Spurrier, I mean, he's the icon, the legend, the man. Um, I think if I'm going QB, do I have do I take a Spurrier era QB? Um, man, I don't know. That's a tough one. Um, but I think I'm going to go with Danny Werfel. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna pick a Spurrier QB, I'll, I'll go with Danny. And then, you know, I'm tempted to pick somebody. I don't know a receiver. Does it have to be a Spurrier era receiver? I don't know. I'm going back and forth on this. I put Percy on my Mount Rushmore, but if I need like yards picked up, maybe I'm not gonna pick him. Maybe I'm gonna pick a Redell Anthony or Ike Hilliard. How do I even pick between those two? Um, but I'm going to just choose one. I'm going to choose Redell Anthony. And then when I think about um, running backs, there's a ton out there that you could pick. And I'm going to go with my man, Fred Taylor. Love him. He didn't get mentioned. I love him also first time with the Jaguars. He can catch the ball out of the backfield, do a lot of stuff, tons of speed, get down the field. There you go. I was purposely saving him for this. And I was like, you know what? Allen is definitely going to say him at running back. Uh, I waited. I was going to mention him under, you know, favorite players or at least even in other categories. But you just stole him. All right. Play Sorry caller. About that. Play caller. It, it, that's, I can't imagine another school that really has an easier answer to this one than Florida does. So you, you have don't to want to go Dan Mullen here? Yeah. You got to pick the visor and Spurrier. I mean, you don't want to do Dan Mullen? And his... I, I don't. I don't <laughs> okay. want to do Dan Mullen. Although I'm happy that Dan Mullen has, has clearly Dan Mullen 2.0. Get some consideration. At quarterback, uh, I guess I'll take my current quarterback here, Danny Warfel, in this situation. And this is, this to me really only comes down to two it comes down to Rex Grossman or Danny Warfel. I'm not taking Tim Tebow with Steve Spurrier. That's that's a match not made in heaven at all. I mean, right. could Spurrier use him? Sure. But is Tebow going to throw the ball to a mark accurately? <laughs> Absolutely not. You can't put those two together. That is an impossibility. So because of that, I'm going to go Danny Warfel. Uh, Rex Grossman was unbelievably prolific under Spurrier. But Rex wasn't as reined in as Danny was. That's and true. if it's the end of the game, you don't want Brett Favre quarterbacking for you because a lot of times they end in interceptions. I mean, honestly, I thought... This is stuck with me. Maybe my worst loss as a Gator fan was the 2001 Tennessee game. It is for me. And, you know, Rex got us down the field, but then we didn't convert that two-point conversion. So not that Rex didn't have other game-winning drives or play. It's not like he wasn't clutch. But that stuck with me when I was choosing between the two, honestly. I like it. Yeah, and that game was hard to put it solely on Rex, obviously. No, no, it's not his fault we lost. But, but yeah. Man, that's probably really not fair to him, but that's no, what came but that hurt. That loss hurt so bad. Anyone who was there, that that's an excruciating, excruciating loss. Uh, and, and a year in which, Alan, obviously the season was a little different because we, we had to deal with a September 11th situation, yeah. Yeah. which changed how things were played and what we did. And uh, and that, that led to something maybe we face this season where you get a rescheduled game somewhere different. I don't know. Either way, very painful. For my receiver, I am going to take Percy. Okay. 
And uh, we had Percy on our flag football team year one for a minute there. Do you and expect could, he's going to run that I could tell you yard that, dig? I could tell you that Danny was really giddy, and I could also tell you that that Danny was not thrilled with Percy's route running. And it wasn't that his route running was bad. It's that Spurrier is so precise with his route running that it was different, and that's a problem. But I also know that Percy hit more home runs to win football games than anyone else I've ever seen. That's true. And so if I get one drive and I got to win... You took the other path, which I like. That's super consistent quarterback, super consistent receiver. That's the smart way to go, but I don't want to pick the same exact kind of people. Okay. I'm going to take Percy, who I could have Danny pitch in the ball or hand it off to him or just get him the ball somehow. Sure. Right? And Spurrier's routes, especially at that point in time, I guys running wide open, Percy Harvey running wide open. That's 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 recipe for a touchdown. In another universe uh, where this guy's life turns out a little bit differently, Antonio Callaway clutch way faster than you think he is great hands is going to get separation get open you know another wild card i thought about was uh dallas baker who didn't make my favorite players list but i thought about him for this game for some reason you know dallas baker the dallas touchdown baker, maker. touchdown baker man there you he's go. clutch yeah taylor jacobs you had there a lot you of guys in there you could you could definitely slot from jabbar gaffney yes he definitely did catch the ball at tennessee of course yeah, yeah clearly not but I, I love that and then at running back you took my guy you took fred taylor i think he's perfect as he proved in the nfl for a, a fourth quarter last minute drive anyway guy that's got hands out of the backfield smart capable running back who do i take now uh we're not allowed to take in it so that that makes things more Ernest tricky. Graham, Eric Rett, any of those it guys. It makes things more tricky. And so it's like, I'm not taking Ernest Graham. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm tempted. I'm I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to continue to go in a very weird direction here. Okay. Because it's a two-minute drill and because it's the fourth quarter and I have to win, I'm going to go with Chris Rainey. Wow. It's wild. Coming out of the backfield, super slippery. So basically what I've done here is I've gone consistent, consistent, Two complete wild cards potentially under the Spurrier system, right? Percy and Rainey. I've totally gone like diametrically barbell opposed <laughs> yes, scenario. Yes, you have. But I, you know, you could choose the capable normal running back. But I'm thinking of Steve Spurrier with Chris Rainey coming out of the backfield, with Danny Warfel throwing the football and Percy Harvin stretching it vertically. There's a lot of space in the field. I think that especially back then that could be dynamite. If we ask the question right now, I might change my answer. Because I still think Spurrier's offense is a little bit dated, although those plays still work. They don't work what they used to. You have better defenses according to stopping them. I don't know. I might blow up this whole answer, but for now, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with that. This is like you know maybe throughout time or whatever. yeah. This is like a fun exercise anyway. So there's something to chew on for you guys out there. Something good to to chew on there. Okay, um, one of our last questions here: the Gator coach you would most like to play for. So you're gonna take into account. His personality, his coaching style, and the scheme that he's running. And I assume you're going to play quarterback. Yeah, this one is so easy for me. It's obviously Jim McElwain. I, I, I couldn't even you know, think of anyone else <laughs> better to play for. His dog can play. I could play. No, this is, this is actually more interesting than maybe you would think on the face of it. You know, Hearing enough stories about Spurrier, sort of torturous to play quarterback for Spurrier. Highs and lows, but really, you, you never really get the pat on the back that you're the guy. And that's that's tough. Dan Mullen is the opposite. You're definitely getting the endorsement that you're the guy, and he's very gentle and kind and teaching and sort of loving and building. So I think this might be a surprise to you, Alan, but I think I would, I think I would pick Dan Mullen 
And, and I imagine myself, I'm putting myself, not in myself now, I'm putting myself in my 18 to 21 or 22 year old self and thinking about like, who would nurture me? And I'm not someone who needs nurturing per se, but I do hear the Danny stories and think my really competitive, maybe sometimes cocky attitude back then would have seriously clashed with Steve Spurrier, which you saw some other quarterbacks have that happen with, like Doug Johnson notably. Yes. And, you know, Doug Johnson is magnitudes of, of more, I think. 20 year old hotness that I would have had but long answer made short I think at that time someone like Dan a a teacher who's really going to explain the backdrop to the game versus Spurrier who's more of a do what I tell you I'm an entrepreneur I don't work well with do what I tell you I need the why walk me through why we're doing it why don't we try it this way may have worked better for me impossible to know but I'm going to give maybe a very interesting answer there with regards to that so I'm going to go surprisingly demo on that's so interesting. I think it would have been really fun to play for Urban Meyer in some sense that the expectation that you're going to win and just the powerhouse program he's going to build. But the obvious answer for me is the fun and gun. Steve Spurrier, we're going to chuck it over everybody's head. No one can stop it. You know, no one sees it coming, I guess. Uh, I'm sure Shane Matthews had a ton of fun just obliterating people who were not ready for it. Uh you know, this, the quarterback who's first successful under Spurrier right when he got there, if you're not sure who Shane Matthews is, you know, early 90s Gator QB. But that feels like the most fun. And, and let me preface this by saying, Alan, I'm talking about right now. Sure. Because I have serious doubts that Steve Spurrier's offense is throwing the ball so over the So it's right now, but you're 18? Yeah, that's why I told you I'm being I'm being hyperbole. Now, if we're gonna go, I just want I liked where you're going with that. If if I'm able to play for a coach at when they were coaching, oh, it's a hundred million percent Steve Spurrier. That's not even the question's not even worth asking. I'm I'm right there with you. But if I'm thinking right now, okay, I look at Spurrier's offense in South Carolina and elsewhere, like mm, they're not they're not super exciting offenses. He did well, he did really well, but I'm like, uh, I, mean, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But yes. Spurrier era? I mean, come on. I think if you're a quarterback, was there ever a better coach to play for? Maybe Mike Leach was right there. But, I mean, I think Spurrier's the guy. You're also winning with Spurrier. The guy. The guy. Hands down. Simple answer. So, for those of you that think I lost my mind out there by picking a coach I frequently rail on, I was creating all sorts of weird No, that's interesting. If you're trying to put yourself... Try to go If you're like, trying to walk into right yeah, now. Yeah. But... You know, Spurrier is also, yeah. you know, retired too. And so. he did win, though. Spurrier is fresh off a championship with, uh, you know, the whatever it was. The Apollos. Yeah. So he did win one. He can still coach. Don't get me wrong on Spurrier. Coaches can still coach. Yes. But I think that offense is not going to be scoring 60 points again. This is not the modern day Kansas City Chiefs right now, right? Spurrier was like 1.0. And now we've gone like 18 levels past Spurrier. Uh, either way, yeah. The visor giving you any kind of love after a touchdown that you threw on one of his ball plays is, come on, it's got to be amazing. So no thought to Urban at all? No, and I think for me, again, I'm really putting a lot of personality into this, and I think it's because you wrote on the question personality, and that like really is hitting me. I think if you had just wrote system, things would be different. But Urban, I remember the end of Urban's tenure and his quotes, and he was such a robot that it drove me crazy. He had the same things he would say about every city he was in, same things he would say about every school he coached for. It was like a programmatic response. I live in the greatest city in America. I have the greatest fans. I have the greatest friends. I have the greatest this, blah, blah. I can't stand that stuff. I'm a very authentic person. I don't care if you disagree with me entirely. Just be authentic with me. I enjoy that. Both Spurrier and for what it's worth, I think Dan Mullen are actually very authentic guys, which is why I think you see me leaning towards them and not mentioning Urban. 
Urban, I just don't think is really an authentic guy. I think he's a very successful system builder who also part of his system is to put on this act. And I just don't like that. And Spurrier has no act. Absolutely, he is himself. And I don't think Dan Mullen does either. So your personality part, I think, snagged me more than I thought it would have. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and I went in that direction. So it makes for better discussion, I suppose. Yes, that, I love it. So, I, yeah, I, I would recognize that there'd be challenges for playing underneath any of these guys. Um, that would be unique to them. Um, and I think you're wise to put yourself... Not just like you're not an abstract person playing underneath, but you are James Virgilio, 18 years old. What would that look like? Um, but I think it's cool to have had Steve Spurrier, Urban Meyer, Dan Mullen all in on the, the recent coaching tree. You know, of course, Ron Zook, uh, Will Muschamp, and Jim McElwain were either not mentioned or laughingly mentioned. But that's still three pretty incredible coaches to have possibly played quarterback under. Okay, James, anything else on your mind? Anything else to discuss? Yes, Scotty Lewis is staying next year. Yeah. Presumably, we've discussed Mike White a lot. Obviously, we're not going to go into it right now. Uh, Justin Seitz gets spared, our basketball insider, his prediction, because there was no tournament, so he can argue he wasn't wrong. So he saves face. But Scotty Lewis presumably was the captain of this basketball team, even though he was a freshman, emotionally, energy-wise. He was the guy that I think I don't want to say cared the most, but he's a guy that embodies what your emotional leader looks like. And if he is staying, that could be interesting. Yeah. I have no idea what everyone else is doing, Alan. No idea. But at this point in time when the pod's coming out, could be interesting. That's obviously big Gator news potentially for next year's basketball team, depending on what happens. Right. I like to peruse NBA draft big boards and mock drafts. Uh, For the first time I ever saw Keontae Johnson somewhere on one of those. So he started to turn some heads, I think, at the end of the year. Uh, Nimhard, you saw sometimes being, but I haven't seen him on any of those things in a while. But I think he looked at the NBA draft process so hard last year, I would assume he would look at it again this year. Now, Keontae and Scotty are guys that would really, I think, benefit from the pre-draft process, both their personalities and their athletic. Let's get them in there and test. Oh, this guy jumped 40 feet in the air. Oh wow, we have to look at this guy, right? Wingspan, those types of things would benefit them, and you know, teams still get that measurement, but that's not the wow factor of seeing it in person. So, yeah, I, I'm hopeful that maybe all of those guys stay, and maybe next year's team could become the thing that we thought this year's team could become, and that maybe they needed that extra year. Yeah, that could be wishful thinking, but interesting news from Gatorland: Scotty Lewis staying. And I think it's the best thing for him. I, I agree with the decision. Yeah, it's definitely the right thing for him to do. And we didn't get a chance to do, obviously, a basketball breakdown of should they stay or should they go. And there's so many other things happening now. We won't even get into it. But that is the largest piece of personnel news that's come out of the Florida program here recently. And I guess lastly, we talked about this, Alan. Um, you know, the baseball team, right? Potentially yeah. on a historic run. Their Sucks. season is gone. I mean, just absolutely. If you hadn't paid attention, like me, I played baseball. That was my main sport. College baseball is not my main thing. But they were on a historic pace in yeah. college baseball. I usually start gone. paying attention in late March, early April. And, you know, I knew what was going on behind the scenes or in terms of, you know, not behind the scenes, but, you know, keeping some attention on them. And, yeah, it's got to be a heartbreaker for those guys. Um that a real chance to take home another championship. And there's a couple other teams 
that Scott mentioned, you know, who are poised or in a position to win a championship as well. So just a lot of sad stories from this. If you're looking at just through the lens of college athletics. Yeah. It's a shame. Anyone who's played any sports, if you play rec leagues or sports now, I'm sure they've all been canceled and you missed that on your own playoffs. I can't imagine with a limited eligibility window, what that feels like. So, you know, I think our thoughts go out to all the athletes and to all of you, for those that are dealing with any sort of COVID related issues, family, friends, yourself, uh, Alan and I certainly wish you all the best and, uh, you know, hope that everything gets back to normal, whatever normal means. I don't believe life goes back to normal. It's constantly changing, but hopefully we we step forward, we progress, we emerge with new thoughts about how to spend time with our friends and family and what, what is important to us and what truth is and what we value and all these things. Use your time, use it well, uh, you know, and we're thankful, Alan and I, especially me here, to be able to talk about the things we talked about today. It's a fun break, Alan, to discuss football and to talk with the AD and to get a chance to kind of uh, you know, discuss the things that normally made up our lives, and we didn't really think about it not being there. So this has been nice. Too true. Yes, and thankful for all you guys. Hopefully this podcast is a nice little surprise for you. Hope that you enjoyed it. We'll talk to you guys soon. <laughs>